0: Hello and welcome to a new series of Forever Leeds, the podcast from the University of Leeds Alumni Department, where we look at what's happening in Leeds right now and revisit some times, places, and faces that will be familiar to everyone who's been to the university. I'm Rich Williams. I was studying here, oh man. 20 years ago, coming up to 20 years ago, studying politics and uh, your host and my co-presenter, Alba Goskova, uh, who you've got a bit of news since we were last recording this, since the end of the last series and the start of this one, big university news.
1: Well, I do indeed, yeah. Next year, I'm going to be the editor of the student newspaper, which is now called The Griffin. Some of you may know it as Lead Student. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Really,
0: there's only me here, but I'm going to give a, a little mini singular. We have we we have production in the background. who can all join in with a. There we go. Uh, so you had to like put yourself forward as a candidate for that, and uh, how did your campaign go? What did you run it on? Why did people choose you, Alba?
1: I think to be fair, I had a lot of passion for the role. Uh, I ran it online on social media as well as like in, like present. Um, I did posters, like mini events, all that. It was lots of fun, and I think my passion and my dedication to the newspaper really showed. So that's why.
0: Awesome. Um, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but you're like following in the footsteps of Jay Rayner, Nicholas Witchell, who've uh, who've had the same role as well. So, you know, no pressure or anything.
1: No pressure at all. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And then we are currently recording today just in the Great Hall building next to the Great Hall. So if you're listening to this and you've graduated, you'll know the Great Hall because that's why you went up and got your certificate in your gown. You're going to be here in a few months' time doing that yourself when you graduate.
1: Yeah, very soon. Exciting. Okay.
0: But you get a little sneak preview beforehand by in. sneaking <laughs> in beforehand, which is great. Uh, I'm feeling really nostalgic this week because um, I came here yesterday, even though we're recording today, because yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of uh, my wife and I getting together. Uh, And we met at Leeds Uni. So we came here for a stroll around in the sunshine and a cup of coffee, looking around and just just reminiscing about how it's possibly 20 years since we were here and uh, just feeling jealous of the fact that you're still in and amongst it.
1: Well, that was a long time ago. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Really appreciate it. That was me giving you (laughs) a round of applause and you uh, totally taking the you-know-what. Okay, (laughs) we have lots coming up for you on this series and to start us off on this first episode of Series 2. So... Albert, what have we got on the podcast this time?
1: Leeds people make the running around the world. On this edition, we'll be meeting the best-selling historian and author, Helen Rappaport, and finding out how she kindled her love of the Victorian era when she studied at Leeds in the swinging 60s. We'll be talking to seasoned BBC News presenter, Martin Croxell, face of the BBC World and BBC News channels, host of The Papers and winner of celebrity mastermind about how she discovered a passion for journalism by working on yes the Leeds student newspaper and we'll be finding out about the Leeds born academic who worked tirelessly to rescue scores of scholars and writers from Nazi Germany
0: plus you've heard of these heat pumps right well the government is planning to offer grants for 90,000 homes to install the new low carbon heating systems but they're proving controversial. We've got a Leeds doctoral researcher to explain how heat pumps fit into the net zero future and why they can be affordable. And as the summer term begins, graduation time is approaching. This year, Leeds has hosted some very special events for all those students who missed their graduation ceremonies because of the pandemic over the past couple of years. We'll go wandering among the caps and gowns to meet some of them and find out about their memories of Leeds.
1: Remember to follow Forever Leads on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. You'll get every episode automatically. And do tweet us at LeadsAlumni. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast. Now, if you're a history lover, you may well have read the works of Helen Reports. She's the award-winning author of 14 books on subjects as diverse as Russia's imperial family, Queen Victoria, Joseph Stalin, and The Birth of the Art of Photography. Helen is a world-renowned authority on the Victorian era, and she was historical consultant on the ITV drama Victoria, as well as many TV and radio dramas and documentaries. And if you were in Leeds in the late 1960s, especially in the theatre group, you may well have rubbed shoulders with her. In fact, she went on to act professionally before becoming a writer. It's quite a story. Let's meet her and find out more.
2: Hello, I'm Helen Rappaport. I studied Russian Special Studies at Leeds and now have an honorary doctorate from Leeds for my contribution to writing history over many years. I concentrate mainly on Russia and Victorian Britain from around the reign of Queen Victoria, 1837, to the end of the Russian Civil War in about 1920. I've always had a great interest in Victorian Britain. I think it stemmed from the fact that I loved Charles Dickens. But it was in my teens that I discovered Russia, that sort of Cold War period, actually, when Russia seemed very remote, you know, that enigma hidden behind the Iron Curtain. I developed such a passion for the all things Russian that I leapt at the chance of being able to study Russian in the sixth form at grammar school. I always count myself lucky that I got accepted at Leeds because this is the 1960s, it's a very long time ago, but in the 1960s, the Russian department at Leeds was absolutely first class. It was the most wonderful, comprehensive, far-reaching Course, I could have wished to be part of, and uh, I count myself very, very lucky. I always remember the day I, I left for Leeds. Now, I had never been further north, I think, than sort of greater London. <laughs> I remember my mum coming with me to the station at Gillingham to see me off with my enormous suitcase. I, I'd sent a trunk on ahead of me to my digs in Harehills. And my mother wept as I got on the train. It was almost so <laughs> as I was going on to Dick Darkest Siberia or somewhere. It was extraordinary arriving in Leeds, not having had any experience of Northern England at all, but I came to develop a great love of Yorkshire. The nineteen sixties in Leeds was an incredible time to be a student. We were free, we were excited, we were liberated, we were discovering. All these new freedoms, the women's movement was beginning to develop. In the 1960s, the only difficulty, it, because it was, you know, high Cold War periods, not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, they couldn't get students to Russia Very easily. One or two occasionally went for a whole year with the British Council or something like that, but generally getting to Russia for any length of time was virtually impossible. So, what it boiled down to was an interesting choice, and I'm very glad I made the right choice because basically all they could offer was those who wanted to could go and do a two week grammar course in Minsk, as it turned out, or you could opt to do a second Slavonic language. Now, I was very fortunate that one of the newish lecturers then at Leeds, Michael Holman, had studied Bulgarian, and he was offering to run a a course in Bulgarian. And one of the other lecturers in the Russian department offered a course in Czech. And both courses involved a three-month exchange And I thought, well, which would I prefer, three months in Bulgaria or two weeks in Minsk being bored? So I opted to do Bulgarian and had a wonderful time because a group of four of us who went from Leeds, we were the very, very first exchange group to go from Leeds to Bulgaria to Sofia University. We went all over Bulgaria. We even hitchhiked. We had wonderful friends, Bulgarian students from the university, who took us everywhere and so looked after us. Once you're bitten with acting, it's something you have to either do and exercise or spend the rest of your life thinking, oh, my God, maybe I should have tried. So I was in that position and I was bitten and I would paid Nina in the seagull, for God's sake, because I was you know, full of all the romanticism of being an actress. So I went off, and I tried to work as an actress. And I would say I spent the best part of the next fifteen years out of work, broken, pissed off. Actually, because it's not—it's not a happy profession to be in. The re- rejection, the long periods doing menial jobs. But I'd always wanted to get into writing history, and so. I think in the end, it just was a very natural progression. I don't regret it now. I kind of got where I was meant to go, I feel, in the end, but by a rather circuitous route. My real big, I would say my first real success in terms of sales, and and I'm still getting sales and foreign rights on that book, is Um, the Romanoff sisters, uh, four sisters it was in English in the UK, which came out in 2014. And that I think was quite an important turning point where I began to earn a living, really earn a living as a writer. I love the challenge of researching and writing about people for whom the record is incomplete, where there are gaps in the narrative, where there are myths and legends and no one's really done the work. And I love that kind of process of detection come genealogical research, because I have done a lot of genealogical research. I got into genealogy in the early 80s. So I like going for subjects about whom nothing much is known. When I do a big subject... I like to opt for an aspect of the subject's life or times, so I never go for a great big biography of a very important person. So when it when it came to the Romanos, I looked at particular points in their story. Did Leeds change me? If I had taken my mother's advice and stayed with being a secretary. And I don't blame her. You know, her attitudes were very much of her time and generation. If I had stuck with secretarial work, I probably would have got married and had 2.5 children by my mid-twenties, been terribly bored. And God knows what I would have done. But instead, I went to Leeds. I discovered Russia, all things Russian. I had the fantastic community at Theatre Group, We had a laugh and a wonderful time there. All in all, from grammar school to the end of my Leeds studying, I had the most wonderful liberal education that any person could wish for. And what's more, of course, back in the day, it was all state funded. So I'm intensely grateful for that. Leeds brought me so much rich experience. And one last thing I'd like to share I remember being in my digs in Hare Hills the day Sergeant Pepper came out, the, the absolute seminal Beatles album. And about six of my friends came rushing around to my digs, banging on the door, gr- flourishing the album. We've got it, we've got it. So we all went off to someone's flat and we sat there and we played Sergeant Pepper over and over And over again. And I think that's probably the most seminal memory I have of Leeds.
0: From the Victorian era and Soviet Russia to the present day. And the climate challenge. Some 85% of UK homes use gas boilers for heating, and that makes it one of the most polluting sectors of the economy. As part of its net zero plans, the government is urging British households to adopt heat pumps, domestic heat exchanges that draw warmth from the air and ground, but they are expensive, costing up to £10,000 each. And they're controversial. David Barnes is a research assistant in energy geostructures at Leeds, and he says we haven't begun to tap the potential for heat pumps. He's talking about shared underground heat exchanges that could get entire streets off gas. David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello there, thanks.
0: It's just a small area you're covering there then.
1: (laughs) First up, I wanted to know exactly what are heat pumps and how do they work, assuming that most people use boilers nowadays.
3: So the first thing to know about heat pumps is that they're everywhere. They're not a new invention, they're not a novel technology, they're all over the place. They could be on the wall of your office, they could be in a vending machine, they're in your fridge for sure, they're everywhere. But using heat pumps for heating is... Uh, In the UK, it's something we've not done very much. Lots of other countries have been using heat pumps for decades and are doing really well at at moving away from using gas and other fossil fuels. Uh, Essentially, what a heat pump does is is, it's like a fridge in reverse. What that fridge is doing is is it's taking energy away from the fridge and expelling it to the air, which is why the back of your fridge feels hot. What a heat pump is doing is drawing that energy from the air or the ground and it's compressing it and it's creating heat. So it makes the space warmer rather than cooler.
0: Uh, So it it seems like a, a fairly obvious solution in some ways. And then my mind goes back to that little bit that we said at the start, which is... £10,000 at the moment, let's say, for a a heat pump, which doesn't make it accessible to say, right, let's all move to heat pumps at the moment. So what's going to happen here? Is this a case of them getting cheaper as we do more of this? Is it an infrastructure thing? How do we move then from what we've got at the moment, non-sustainable, to this better solution?
3: That is the challenge. Yeah. So currently heat pumps are expensive uh, £10,000 is the average for an air source heat pump. So one of the key things about heat pumps is you can use the air as a source of energy or the ground or a water source if you have to be near a river, for example. So £10,000 is your average cost for an air source heat pump. The government has just introduced a new scheme uh, that will give away some grants for £5,000 towards installing a, an air source heat pump. So that still leaves a significant amount of money that the household would need to find. On top of that, my street is a good example. The best way I like to think about this is, yeah, from my position as a, I live on a street of terraced homes, okay, I haven't got a garden, I've got a little yard. There's no room for a ground source heat pump because I don't have room for a borehole. I don't have room for an air source heat pump because there isn't anywhere far enough away from a window where I could put the outside unit. So what's the solution going to be for me? And the technology that we've been looking at is called Shared Ground Heat Exchange, And what it does is it brings together the idea of a heat network with the idea of a heat pump such that you can benefit from the electrified low carbon heat that a heat pump can provide with not having the equipment or not having the space and not having the equipment on the outside of your property.
0: Yeah, because I was reading the uh, the article in, in the news about this and it actually displays it when you look at the images that it's all, you know, underground. It's like a network that's piped out to to the houses. So so what would happen there in terms of cost? Would you sign up for a monthly subscription, a payment, and then you would be provided with your, your energy?
3: This is the one of the things that, uh, while we think this has real potential, because, you know, one of the challenges is, you know, if you, if you're a household and you would like a heat pump you have to do all the work yourself you have to decide you're going to do it you have to find the right heat pump you have to find a company who's going to install it and you'll have to pay for it but this the the way that this shared ground heat exchange can work this is one of the things that needs to be developed is these business models to make it work is this is like a utility like a broadband provider so a company a utility provider would install the pipe work install the boreholes that take the energy from the ground And run it up your street. So it would go under the pavement. That would mean if this worked out that you as a household can decide, all right, okay. well, it's time to replace our gas boiler or it's broken down. Heaven forbid. You know, we need to decide what to do. I don't want to have another gas boiler, but I have this other option now, which is this shared ground heat exchange system outside that I can then choose to connect into. So, yeah, there is lots to work out in there, of course, in terms of, you know, how do we pay for it? Is it through some sort of subscription model? Is it an annual charge or a monthly charge? Or is it just a one-off connection fee, for example? And in terms of the actual heat that you get in your home, the heating and hot water, you pay for that through your electricity bill. So you're not paying some third party other provider like you have with a normal district heat system that that does cause problems for people. You're just paying it for it through your electricity bills
1: can we actually bring them in fast enough to help deal with the cost of living that's currently rising?
3: So these, you know, as pieces of infrastructure, they take time to install. So, but we can definitely go a lot faster than we are now. So the government has a policy to see 600,000 heat pump installations a year by 2028. But currently we're way adrift of that, at around 30,000. So there's this huge, huge gap that we've got to make up and the new funding policies from the government also go no way to support that because they they only fund 30,000 a year, uh, installations a year. So the idea of, about um, developing this model is to say, you know, it, it wouldn't be reliant on that on that government, you know, short term funding streams, that this could be a model that would work in the long term to scale this up across the country. And what we need to make that happen is we need new innovative providers yeah, we need the companies who are, who are involved in, in you know, different utilities you know, with their established setups. We need loads of different people to come into this space and think, actually, I can do this. And and since we published this work in the last few weeks, we're starting to have those conversations with
1: with those companies now. Taking you back to the very start, how did you come to research this and why Leeds?
3: Sure. So I've lived around Leeds on and off for about 13 years and loved living here and and. Decided to have a change of career and that took me away to the Orkney Islands for a while and then down to London and I was working in a local authority down in London looking at essentially district heating, looking at heat decarbonisation for a, a big local authority in London and yeah that kind of helped shape my priority that you know, heat is the biggest challenge we have to tackle to get to zero carbon. You know, heat is the tough nut to crack. So that's why I then yeah decided that I would get back into research uh, and look at this in more detail and and, and therefore started looking at, at doing, uh, you know, researching at different universities and found essentially what was, for me,
0: for me the, the perfect PhD project was there at Leeds. are talking about heat being the perfect solution. we sat in glorious sunshine today recording this. It's not always like this really in uh, in, in Leeds, is it? But uh, in terms of the, the climate challenge, what other ways is... Is leads working towards that, towards challenging? This isn't the only issue. There are there are lots of issues, and it's important that the university and the the city lead from the front.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and that's the key thing about this. And in, any technical solution is it's only a small part of the puzzle, you know. And really, to get to zero carbon, we need a fundamental rethink of of the way we do everything. We need, you know, we need to rethink the way we, we uh, live our lives and and and. and, and And think about what our economy is for. And that's one of the areas that Leeds University is really good at is this, um, new ideas of economics. So, for example, there's teams here looking at what they call living well within limits. So that's how you can redesign the economic system to actually, you know, enable people to have good, prosperous lives, but within our planetary boundaries. And actually in the, um, and with people from the university and in the climate, Activism work that a lot of us do outside of university—we're actually developing this for Leeds, bringing the idea of donut economics to Leeds. So that's considering um, ideas from Kate Rayworth that are gaining a lot of traction both in the UK and internationally about how we can live within a safe donut of of, of planetary boundaries whilst providing the quality of life and the essential resources that people need to live good lives essentially
0: i mean what a thing to be working on planetary boundaries that's uh, that's really putting the rest of us to shame i think with the work we're doing uh, david thank you so much for giving us a bit of an insight um you know congrats to you and the team on the research you've been doing and hopefully we're going to be seeing some of that implemented in the future thank you very much thanks for having me
1: if you visit the university campus today you'll find a brand new building just to the west of the union and it's named in honour of a Leeds graduate who played a leading role in helping some 1,500 academics to escape from Nazi Germany. Among the people she helped save from almost certain death were 16 future Nobel laureates, including the great philosopher Karl Popper. Here's present-day student Tom Davy with a story of Esther Simpson.
4: What did the philosopher Karl Popper, the Paralympics and the popular 80s television show Blackadder have in common? Well, the fields of philosophy, sport and comedy all owe a debt to Esther Simpson, who was born in Leeds in 1903 and graduated from the university with a degree in French and German in 1925. As the Assistant Secretary of the Academic Assistance Council, Esther played a leading role in helping over 1,500 academics flee Nazi Germany. Her work throughout the 1930s involved organising transport for refugee academics who'd been barred from working by the Nazi government and in this respect, the work she did was the academic equivalent of the Kindertransport program, saving the lives of those persecuted by the Nazi regime. Once they arrived in Britain, Esther remained a figure of support for those transported, and helped arrange accommodation, language schooling, and assisted in the search for academic and commercial work. Indeed, by the outbreak of war in 1939, Simpson had managed to find work for over 2,000 scholars in UK universities. Those she aided became affectionately known as Esther's children. Among her children were the aforementioned philosopher Karl Popper, Ludwig Gutmann, a neurologist who established the Stoke-Mandeville Games, a forerunner to the Paralympics, and the historian Victor Ehrenberg, grandfather to the comedian and Blackadder writer Ben Elton. With an emphasis on academia, those she helped bring to Britain cut across all sectors of cultural and academic life. Indeed, among those she assisted, she could count 74 fellows of the Royal Society, 34 fellows of the British Academy and 16 Nobel Prize winners. Yet, despite the accolades and recognition accredited to those she assisted, Simpson's priority was to rescue people from danger and to help resuscitate their careers. It was not simply the enrichment of British intellectual life. In this aim, Esther worked preposterously hard, to quote one of her former colleagues, and indeed it was 13 years after her appointment to her position that she finally took her first holiday. Now, in 2022, one of the newest buildings on our campus has been named after Esther Simpson and her life-saving achievements. On March the 8th, International Women's Day, I went to the unveiling of the blue plaque outside the building to find out more about Esther Simpson, her life's work, and her lasting legacy. Here's Alison Lowe deputy mayor for the West Yorkshire Combined Authority and Leeds alumna.
3: Um, she was a remarkable woman, mm. um, what a
5: hero. And to say that she came from Leeds, mm. Leeds the city of sanctuary. Um, my dad came here in the 50s, not quite of the Windrush generation, uh, but uh,
3: not far behind uh, those pioneers who came here in the 40s. Uh, and uh, he came to Leeds and experienced all that was wonderful, warm and uh, um, are great about it, but she was there first. She uh, saw the capacity for love that uh, Leeds offers uh, its academics, its yeah. students, uh, and she really fostered uh, that capacity for love.
4: Here's Dr Jonathan Lack, a relative of Esther Simpson, talking about the opening of the building and Esther herself.
3: And a very fitting tribute to a woman who has brought so much to the world to academia uh, in, in a way that um, actually has an, a long-lasting impact uh, that, that effectively continues to grow, just like families continue to grow. Yeah. Um, and, and knowing that she was a family member um, obviously fills me with pride and, and joy to, to see what she has achieved after all these years of hard work.
4: And indeed, it was all those years of hard work and perseverance that really struck me when hearing about Esther Simpson's story. In fact, long after the fall of Nazi Germany, Esther continued to devote all her energies to the aid of academics in crisis. She wrote to a Canadian friend in 1972, Alas, I am kept as busy as ever. Since 1968, there have been waves from Czechoslovakia, Greece, Poland, Brazil, South Africa, the occasional Hungarian, Romanian, Bangladeshi. There is no end. Love for Esther, affectionately known as Tess, was clear. At one attempt of retirement in 1966, a surprise party was organized in her honor. Now, Tess was always frugal. Since she had only ever had a modest salary and had built up virtually no pension, there was a concern about how she would survive in her old age. So, for the party, several members of her now widely dispersed refugee family secretly organized a postal whip round, proposing a small donation of between five and twenty pounds. The refugees raised enough to present her with a cheque that enabled her to buy a sizable flat in London. And following her death, she dedicated the flat back to charity. The lasting impact of Esther Simpson's charitable and hardworking nature was most felt when speaking to the current head of the Council for At-Risk Academics, Stephen Wordsworth. This organisation carries on the work of Simpson, offering aid and sanctuary to academics at risk across the globe. Really, we wouldn't be what
2: we are today without her. Mm. And, and as I say, she, yes, she worked as citizen secretary, she finally retired in 1966, which never really went away. She mm. um, she's very much a football power behind the scenes, she knew everybody, and she had so many connections. Uh, and, and as I say, when, when finally she died, she bequeathed the flat that she'd been bought mm. uh, by the people she'd helped back to the charity. And that's, oh, that, okay. that was all sort of through the charity and helped to fund it for several more years. Uh, she did all the serious work, He uh, made everything happen for those people, and got away her you know, from what would otherwise have be been a very unpleasant death in many cases. Mm. So, you know, she's a tremendous legacy, um, what she did directly, but also what all the people whom she helped, what well, they also did. Yeah. Um,
1: and that goes on.
4: Esther Simpson's tireless work saved lives and continues to inspire a brighter future through the work of those she rescued, their relatives and those she motivated to carry on her mission. Her actions have been recognised by the university's naming of the Esther Simpson building, ensuring that her name remains on campus and part of the university's long list of esteemed graduates forever.
0: If you were at Leeds in the late 80s, you might recognise a certain face whenever you turn on the BBC News Channel or watch the newspaper's preview. Martine Croxall presents news bulletins across the corporation's channels. She won praise for her handling of the November 2015 terror attacks in Paris and also for the coverage of the death of Prince Philip in April 2021. But if she hadn't gone to Leeds, Martine's life might have panned out very differently. Let's find out how she got where she is today.
5: My name is Martine Croxall. I'm a journalist and presenter with the BBC News Channel and sometimes BBC World News TV as well. I knew that I wanted to study geography because it was my favourite subject at school and one that I'd probably been best at. And I chose Leeds, I think, because I wanted to go to a big campus university, preferably one in the north of England, because I'd grown up and been educated in the East Midlands and and the West Midlands, and I wanted to be somewhere new. I remember going to Leeds for the first time in November 1986, which was my last year of school. My dad drove me up from Leicestershire and on the way I'd said to him, what's Leeds like, Dad? Because in the early 70s, he'd sort of been dragging himself around factories and warehouses in Leeds, trying to drum up business for his uh, business. And he kind of paused and didn't really want to say, and he went, I think I'm just going to let you um, decide for yourself, because his recollection of Leeds in the 70s had been that it had been sadly a drab sort of place, you know. And when we drove into the city centre, it was a rather different place from how he had remembered it. It was obviously the late 80s, 1987, when I went to, to Leeds, so the Conservatives were in power, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister, and yet Leeds certainly by reputation and by my experience was a, a more left of centre university. So there was always a lot of political activity going on. There were students at Leeds who, you know, wanted to change the world. But then things changed, obviously. The following year, 1988, Mikhail Gorbachev lost control of two of the regions of the Soviet Union and the Baltic republics started to talk about independence. And then in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. So there were sort of entire political eras that were coming to, the, to an end in Eastern Europe. And that had an impact on my studies. Because I, in my third year, did a course about the geography of the USSR. And by the time I took my finals in the summer of 1990, some of what we'd been taught was completely out of date. We just had to sort of pretend that it hadn't happened so that we could actually be questioned on the things that we'd learned. I think the way I looked could be described as confused. We didn't have a lot of money and so you didn't have a lot of clothes to wear. And then I went through a bit of a phase where I wore cycling shorts a lot. Don't ask me why, but I did. With like ballet pumps and big jumpers. And then I wore docks and flowery dresses, which was a bit of a uniform. And then I went through a phase where I wore these sort of short sort of gathered skirts with over the knee socks. And I'm five foot ten. I mean, you know, I'm not like a little girl. I, I must have looked quite ridiculous. And my hair It was still in the era where you kind of did your own home perms sometimes because you didn't have a lot of money. And then when they grew out, of course, you almost had this like a a mulletty haircut, as if you've got a sort of monk's tonsure on the top of your head. It was really poor. And then I discovered that Vidal Sassoon in town did free model haircuts. So things improved. I seem to remember doing quite a lot of dancing university i mean bad dancing probably but um the i mean the 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 weekly ones the obvious ones that everybody went to was the thursday bop in the leeds union the poly bop obviously down the road at leeds poly but my two favorite nightclubs well actually there were three was the news down by the queen's hotel the warehouse down by Leeds Swimming Pool. But my absolute favourite was Le Phonographique, which, or the phono, as we called it, which was bizarrely under the floor of the Marion Shopping Centre. Under the floor. I mean, you like, like, would lift a hatch up out of the floor and you would walk down these steps. And I remember it was such a friendly atmosphere and it played a lot of like, early house music, which I really enjoyed. The gigs that I went to at the Refeck in Leeds, I remember the Bavarian Stompers Umpar band were a massive favourite with everybody. I don't know why, but they were. I mean, they literally played Umpar music from Germany and Austria. But the gig that stands out for me was seeing Julian Cope. I guess it must have been in about 1988, 89. And he dived off the balcony in the Refeck and thankfully the crowd caught him. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as a career. I thought I knew what I wanted to do, and I thought I wanted to work in radio but as a magazine programme producer. So I never thought of myself as becoming a journalist, but I thought it wouldn't do me any harm to do some sort of written journalism before I tried to get a job. So I vaguely dabbled with Lead Student. I remember finding it quite an intimidating place to come into. Jay Rayner had been the editor and I'm pretty sure Andrew Harrison was the editor when I came in one day and pitched a story because we'd been burgled somebody I lived with had come back early from a night out to discover our belongings being carted out of the house on Eberston Terrace just off Victoria Road and she sort of said that's Nicola's television and grabbed the aforementioned portable television and off this um rather startled youth that was burgling our house I remember I had perfume stolen I had a hi-fi thing stolen my parents were furious with me because they deliberately put a padlock on my bedroom door and of course I was in such a rush to get out I, I hadn't locked my door but I remember walking into the lead student, um office and saying I think I've got a story and Andrew said to me yeah, that's a story. Why don't you write it? So I did. I'm not sure that much of what I originally wrote (laughs) survived. But anyway, yeah, I I wrote a few times. And then in my holidays, I did a placement with the Hinkley Times, our local newspaper, and I wrote the weddings page. I think the student me would be amazed at what I'm doing. I was probably quite shy, really. And for my sort of 18, 19 year old self to see me on national and international television, you know, breaking the news of the Duke of Edinburgh's death to millions and millions of people or reading the national bulletins at the weekend where we have millions of viewers, would be so surprised that I went on to do that because my expectation and intention was very much to be a a backroom person in broadcasting. Uh, radio, not television, certainly never wanted to be on air and that has not at all of course been how it's worked out but I think she would be incredulous that I've had the fortune to have the career that I've had.
1: Finally, spring means graduation time at Leeds for lots of students including me. It's a time to recognise what you've achieved as a student celebrate with friends, and see some familiar places, maybe for the last time. And this year, the ceremonies are even bigger than usual, with so many graduations postponed because of the pandemic. Tom Davy went down to campus to meet the students who are marking the end of their time at Leeds, and find out what it all meant. I'm Asha and I'm graduating from journalism today. Uh, I'm Abigail Alvroy and I'm graduating with a first bachelor's in Film Photography Media International.
4: My name's Rolf, and I'm graduating for Mechatronics and Robotics.
1: Uh, so my name's Charlotte, and I'm graduating in a BA in Communication and Media.
4: i Alf, Solomon, and my degree is History. My name is Sean Lee. I'm currently studying in University of Leeds as a electronic Electrical Engineering. Dan Smith and I'm graduating from uh, Economics and Maths. My name is Thomas Davey. I am graduating with a BA in History. However, today I am on campus on behalf of the Forever Leeds podcast. Amongst the smiling graduates and their families and friends, I'm talking to those like me who have only just been given the opportunity to attend their graduation ceremonies due to COVID. Over the past few weeks, students from both the 2020 and 2021 cohorts have flocked back to Leeds to celebrate all their hard work. And so... I asked them what it felt like to return to the city to finally have a graduation ceremony and of their favourite memories at the University of Leeds. And how does it feel to be graduating today?
1: Amazing! (laughs) Uh, Finally! Uh,
4: It feels really good, to be honest. It's kind of odd because we got the piece of paper, obviously, Mm. last year and then we're doing the ceremony now, but it's really nice to do the ceremony. Yeah, nice to see everybody again and Mm. come back for a final time, definitely. Having the graduation such a long time after... Actually, graduating, mm. you know. Um, it's quite nice because I'd forgotten I graduated because it was months and months and months ago. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, uh, I remembered all the all the great stuff that I, I'd, I guess I'd achieved. Nice. Have you caught up with, like, various friends and stuff you haven't seen in a while? Yeah, we've yeah. not
1: seen each other in... A few months, Eight isn't months, it? yeah, maybe. maybe yeah, oh. we all live in London now, so we just came up for the for the night. Oh,
4: nice! So like as a little group of you, yeah.
1: exactly. And going to free tonight to celebrate. Nice, so. nice. <laughs>
4: Classic kind of return back to Leeds
1: exactly nice.
4: exactly. might so, go fruity yeah. for the last time uh, <laughs> and experiencing that so it should, should be should be good yeah uh, so, uh, Are you got any any kind of like plans now are you going to do some fun bits we'll so, see where the day yeah, takes we're yes. not too sure <laughs> to a drink first <laughs> of nice. all what will you miss about
0: the city um, I won't miss anything because I'm going to stay here
4: actually yeah. I'm going to stay for a few more years and so have you got any um abiding memories that come to mind when you're walking in today thinking oh I remember this about such and such course or just um, I remember the Roger Stevens building and just uh, having like 90% of my lectures there mm. and it was, it's kind of nice seeing it from the outside Yeah, uh, don't want to go back inside though too many bad memories in there <laughs> that's for sure it's yeah, a great city I think yeah God's Really, like, really beautiful weather <laughs> yeah. here, uh, and the people here uh, are also really, really nice. And uh, also, my my tutors and my classmates they they they, and they used to help me a lot, and I think I'm really grateful for that. I really, really liked uh, the university buildings and their attitude, like, towards uh, learning in the course. I felt because it, it felt really modern and like project focused and. Um, it helped you learn it wasn't just like sitting in a lecture theater trying to learn everything it was much wider than that which was really good i i, ju- I love the community at leeds i love the i love the, the the atmosphere of campus that's one of the things i miss most over lockdown but it feels like it's returned this year and i really like the uh the 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 lead spirit the people the people like the meeting other students um they're what make the university, amazing. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's great to have all the facilities that the uni has. But the thing that really makes it magic is meeting uh, creative, interesting people obviously coming, coming back to Leeds today was there any particular memory that you thought was, oh that really reminds me of Leeds or this is the first thing that pops into my head when I think of my time at uni
1: honestly um, because I studied so much in cloth workers mm-hmm. um, every day when we went to lectures people would be taking their graduation pictures in the arch in front of the oh. building and it's always been you know, our plan yeah. on our graduation day to finally take ours there <laughs> and
0: block everyone else from going no, to their lectures. It's come full
4: circle yes, then yes exactly. Right. well thank you so much for your time have a wonderful rest of your day thank you you too cheers from walking around campus over the past few weeks there really has been a joyous mood in the air and my various conversations with those graduating has confirmed just that the classes of 2020 and 2021 faced many challenges during their time of study and so to see so many of them back on campus and celebrating their achievements among friends and family felt all the more special whatever they may go on to accomplish they are now sewn into the rich tapestry of
1: Leeds forever.
0: And that's the end of this edition of Forever Leads. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. From me, Rich Williams.
1: And from me, Alba Guskova. We'll see you next time.